This week on Dave and Dom Demystified, we'll be talking about microservices. Now, Dave said he found the whole idea of microservices baffling, but I don't. You just go online, there's lots of microservices. You can buy microscopes, microwave ovens, micro USB cards, micro scooters, and my personal favorite, micro stretch boxer briefs. Bravo, Dom said. You'd make a damn fine micromanager. From the studios of Contrarian, New Media in the UK and US comes the Dave and Dom Demystify Show. Dave? Dave and Dom demystify show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Dom Mystery. Demystify. Hello, welcome to the show today. Dom and I are going to talk about a subject which I have to confess, I sort of find quite confusing and quite impenetrable. If I was to sort of position it, I would say the topic we're going to discuss is one of those things I just completely don't understand. So the thing we're going to talk about is microservices, which sounds to me like something that someone's completely made up in a lab. (laughs) And I'm just kind of interested to understand what they are, how they relate to things like APIs, And, yeah, just kind of get into what they do and how they work. So over to you, Dom. Once we explore them, Dave, I think you'll be surprised at how simple a thing that they actually are. I mean, as always in technology, we like to give something a fancy name, set of acronyms, and then confuse (laughs) people because that's how we get paid, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's a bit like you've got a scooter which is like really cool. And then someone comes along and creates a micro scooter and it's like, <laughs> what's, what's that all about? But anyway, so yeah, let's just kind of jump in. I'm kind of keen to understand what microservices are, how they're applied, you know, why they're good, cases where you might not use them as well. And then, you know, get into some examples to really help people understand these things. Sure, sure. So essentially, a microservice is pretty simple. It's an independently deployable piece of software and typically it has fairly contained functionality. Really, I mean, that's like one microservice. It's a piece of software that does something, right? So a microservice could tell you the time. A microservice could come back and tell you all your customer details, right? Okay. Could it do something like log you into a... Correct. Exactly. But it's also an architecture as well. It's a way of creating a complete solution. So although it's one tiny thing, the overall architecture is the more complex part. So actually building one independent microservice is straightforward. It's really easy. Creating an overall solution that does several things is a lot more complex. Okay, so I'm imagining in my head that a microservice might be something like a Lego brick. And actually what you're doing is building a house and you still need the plans for the house and the way the brick 
kind of works as part of that needs to be carefully considered. Am, am I on the right track? Or? Well, you, you're kind of getting there, right? And what you're alluding to almost is like, what's the difference between a microservice and a component? Because we always heard about components as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So absolutely right. So both of them are contained pieces of functionality. The difference is a component lives as part of an overall bigger solution, but can't be run separately. Right. Whereas a microservice runs totally on its own. And the key thing here is that not only does it run on its own, it can be deployed on its own as well. So a component could have a contained piece of functionality, will be part of a bigger solution, but will be deployed as one monolithic application. Whereas a microservices architecture contains lots of microservices that put, you know, all in all is a complete application, but any one of those services could be deployed separately. Okay, that's for me very interesting. So does that mean that from a kind of flexibility point of view, if you were to launch a service or deploy a service and you found a problem with the microservice that you could update the microservice and just redeploy that microservice without having to redeploy everything. Correct. This is like one of the big benefits of microservices when they're done properly. Because they're independent and they can run on their own, it also means that if they fail, the rest of the system doesn't necessarily go down, right? Okay. So... This is what makes microservices architecture much more complex. Everything needs to be able to carry on. And, you know, it can't really have any dependencies, which brings down the entire system. Okay, that's God. Now I begin to see the complexities. So it's not as straightforward as just like chopping up the code into separate bits of functionality, which is what most people have done in the past, right? That just breaks up a large problem into smaller problems that smaller teams can address. This is a now a runtime issue where it actually gives you maximum flexibility to take bits of the system up or down to upgrade or to fix. But it then also means that everything kind of needs to check before it's using, let's say, one component calls another, that if the other component isn't there because it's been taken down or it's being updated, they can carry on. Okay, that does sound quite complex, but I can also see that on the plus side, there's a lot more flexibility in terms of sort of updating and keeping on top of systems themselves. So if we were to look at, I don't know, let's take a bank as an example, I know and understand things like internet banking where you have various processes which you need to go through as a user in order to kind of log on. And I understand that there's sort of a lot of back-end calls that are being made and there's a lot of security wrapped around it. But if you could sort of go through, I don't know, a customer logging in and checking a balance, what would some of the microservices be that kind of underpin that? So logging in would be just one separate service, getting a balance, getting a customer, two separate activities, right? But then, you know, you'd have something else that says, right, now get me the balance for this customer to make a payment, let's say. So that's a string of activities. I've logged in, I've got the customer, I've got the balance for the customer. I've done the check to see that they've got enough to do a transfer and then I can do the transfer itself. Okay, that makes an awful lot of sense. 
Now, you might say, well, okay, yeah, but what if we haven't got the balance because that service was down? Yeah. So then you might say, well, okay, do I know the threshold of this payment? So let's say if they had zero balance or we don't care what the balance is, but let's say the payment's only for £50, you might have a rule within there that says, well, there's a tolerance here that we can just let this one go without checking the balance. So now we start to give some flexibility on the way that the service can be handled. You hear kind of microservices talked about in relation to APIs as well. So what kind of advantages do some microservices have over a more kind of component-based architecture for something like an API? Okay, so you can have an API on top of a component. You can have an API on top of a microservice. That's just a way of calling the actual underlying service. The big difference, as I said, is really that if something went wrong with a component, it may bring down the entire system. Whereas if something went wrong with a microservice, it doesn't necessarily bring down the entire system. So things can carry on. And it may be that for that one user session that they can't proceed for the stuff that they wanted to do. But for everyone else, it carries on. Okay, no, I definitely understand that. The real benefits here clearly are, firstly, the most obvious one is that if you can take down a component and most of the rest of the system carries on running, then that must be a more resilient system. Because if you think that a big monolithic application broken up into components might have several hundred components and any one of those failing potentially could bring down the entire system, then, you know, you've got so many angles when the system comes down. Whereas a microservice, it's the way that it's architected or the system is designed is that any one of those could come down and the rest carries on. So the majority of users wouldn't be potentially affected, right? So resilience is one of the big things about microservices. The second thing is that monolithic piece of code, let's say it was Microsoft Word. When you run it, that monolithic piece of code used to just take up, you know, 100 meg of memory, etc., and it's right taking up X amount of processor time. Yeah. Now, if you want 10 people to use it, now you need 10 lots of those things. Right? Right. Whereas a microservice is much more efficient and you can have multiple instances of these things without taking up the same amount of memory and processing because it's not one massive application. So you might say, well, look, I know out of my thousand word users, only 20 are going to be ever running the spell checker. So I'll have like 10 instances of the spell checker. But the main editing program, I'll have a thousand instances. Now I can scale the system without having to need 100 meg for every single user. That's incredible to kind of think about. Super efficiency you can get to and much more flexibility in the way that you scale a platform, which is why it's great in the cloud. Yeah, I was going to say that there must be a strong connection between what you're saying and kind of cloud-based architectures yeah absolutely so here is the rub with some of the tech vendors right they like to say well oh yeah we're a cloud-based platform we're a native cloud-based platform well actually i think a native cloud-based platform has to have an architecture like microservices to you know properly scale because typically you can take a container which has everything you need to run an application and put your monolith inside it As I said, the problem with that is something goes wrong, potentially the whole thing fails. But it's only one big instance. Whereas in the microservices architecture, everything is in small containable units 
I can run multiple versions of you know instances of these individual units. And those things I can decide how many of which I want to run because I know which ones are the ones that I use the most or use the least. So you can scale both from a software perspective as well as a hardware perspective. If you're just running a single container, you're typically leveraging all of the scalability of the hardware, which you know is good. But if you can get a software scalability as well, that's even more powerful and flexible. Goodness me. So in terms of, I guess, the origin of microservices, was it more about scalability or resilience? What's the history? Who suddenly came up with the idea? If you look at the internet and what the internet's foundation was, it was all about kind of redundancy. So taking that and applying it to kind of software and running software seems to be sort of a sensible thing. But I'm kind of interested who... Who came up with the idea? Where did it come from? You may or may not know, but... Um, yeah, I don't know if there's a single person that's kind of like attributed to this. It was and called like, Bob yeah. <laughs> It's called Darmish. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things that's clear, it, it's come out of necessity for the internet because you now if we think back what used to happen is that we used to have mainframe programs and would slice up mainframe time to kind of scale programs. Largely, they were used to be batch programs. And then we started to have some real-time applications. Then stuff started to kind of, we started to push processing out to the end user's computer. And then you run everything on your personal computer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And, you know, that was scalable because it meant that you could have your big database on the mainframe. But all of the processing for the screens and stuff was happening locally. Yeah. Right? And then... It, some of the clever processing and the calculations happening on your machine and to have all that processing at the mainframe anymore, right? And that was client server. Then came the web and we said, well, actually, now we can use internet standards to connect up to lots of different computers on separate networks, but using standards. But obviously now that meant it's not just people in one company that you used to have with client server. Now it's people from externally, right? right. So the need for scalability massively increased. So... You know, because with websites, people come in and out, you know, they're anonymous. As soon as you've got a session, now you've got to maintain some history of that conversation. That necessitates you now having to kind of look at new ways of scaling. Yeah, I mean, I have to confess, I'm sort of really sat down and kind of thought about it. But now you kind of say, I mean, it's the amount of kind of processing and data and storage and What's more than exponential? It's so yeah. <laughs> massively complex. It's I mean, massive. That, yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess, you know, what I've observed is over the years that, as you say, you kind of got client server and then, you know, there was a debate about, I don't know, dumb terminals, wasn't there? Yeah. And then we suddenly have PCs and laptops with all the processing and all the software on it. And now I kind of turn on my laptop and there seems to be a lot of hybridization so you know i can do everything i want on the cloud and if i'm so inclined i can do it on my machine so you know the lines between all of this are kind of becoming a lot more blurred but you know equally it's all becoming even more complex isn't it so i can create a document locally store it on the cloud someone else can update it and then i can view it again locally as well you know and it's it's kind of crazy when you think about it. So, yeah, I can see why you need this architecture. So I guess one of the things that is a 
kind of obvious question is the architecture. Like you describe how you put this together is extremely complex. So I think technical architects have always had a very important job to do, but it sounds like this is a different order of magnitude in terms of importance. So, you know, how are people kind of going around thinking about systems and where services are and how they work together? The very thought that you'd have to make sure the system can keep going even if a service goes down. I mean, that sounds great. You know, who's having to think all of that stuff through? Architects and the (laughs) IT, obviously. But if you think about, let's take banking an example. Actually, in the very early days, it's very simple. You've got a customer and then you've got this account, which used to be a paper ledger. So, you know, I take £10 from my account, comes out of my ledger, And if I give it to you, there's £10 in yours. That's a pretty simple piece of functionality, right? Then obviously over time, we started to add things like adding interest to your account because now you've got £10 in it. Plus, you know, there was charges applied to pay for my banking. So those pieces of functionality came in. Then we had to start to pay tax on top of the £10 interest that you earn. Then we had to, you know, add more and more, you know, from a compliance perspective. So banking got more and more complex, but at its very core, it's still the same thing. It's an account that has debits and credits, you know, and has some parties that exchange this money. So if you can get back to that simplicity, then you're not boiling the ocean in terms of redesigning it. Some vendors call this hollowing out the core, right, which is get back to its simple functionality, reinvent it as a set of microservices, and then build back out. And by building back out, what's happened is with all of this functionality, why core vendors have done really well is that over 25 years, they've not only made the solutions much more complex and flexible, right? But they made them very extensive in their capabilities. They've added things like KYC and AML checks and credit you know, processing, et cetera, et cetera. Digital marketing components, et cetera. They made them extremely rich. Now, if you try to solve all of that, that's hugely complex. You go back to your roots in core banking, then you can redesign it in microservices. Then you say, well, what about those other pieces of functionality? Well, then you've got a choice. You either build those right with microservices or you start to partner. And nowadays, some of those things used to be specialist components, you know, that were fairly straightforward to build. But nowadays, there are, you know, specialist providers of things like KYC or credit risk assessment that have way more advantage as a specialist provider in those technologies than the core banking vendors. So you might now decide that some of these pieces of functionality are partner with people or at least expose an API that allows me to plug in any other third-party vendors for that piece of functionality. Gosh, I mean, that makes sense. Look, I actually now feel like I do understand what microservices are. Obviously, I won't be doing a GCSE or an exam in them. Just finally, to kind of close off, is there any downsides? I mean, what are the things that people should watch out for in terms of thinking that microservices can solve all of their problems? Writing a microservice, really easy. That's not the problem. Creating a complete solution that has a proper microservices architecture, that's really hard, right? So not to underestimate the overall design and architecture of the solution is the thing to watch out for, you know. And there are some things that have so much more complexity in terms of you can't have interdependencies between, you know, data within the system, 
right, that you might think, well, actually, microservices aren't going to solve that as an issue. Where I think you really, really have to start to look at microservices is, let's say, for example, something like Word, right? That's a piece of functionality. If you wanted to run it on one cloud, right, for millions of users, now you can see I can't afford just to run a separate instance of Word even on somebody's massively scalable hardware platform. I need the software to scale so I don't have to have zettabytes of, you know, or petabytes of memory, let alone disk space, et cetera, right? So it has to run super efficient. And that's where I think there's some massive advantages. If I go back to the banking space, if you want to run banking as a service, which means I'm a provider to other banks and of all of their client bases, then you need to start thinking about that platform has to be in a full microservices architecture. Fantastic. No, brilliant. That's really, really good. Thanks so much, Darmesh. I've really appreciated learning about that today. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Darm Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmesh Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of Contrarian New Media, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.